Have you ever noticed those abandoned wooden pilings found along the waterfronts of New York? Well, they are the remnants of what brought the city to its greatness. You see, there was a time when New York's waterfront was one of the nation's most significant trading hubs. Along the factory line shores, the docks bustled with people making their livelihoods along the Hudson River. The waterways were busy, filled with ferries and steamboats that transferred both cargo and thousands upon thousands of commuters every single day. And yet today, these docks have all but disappeared lost to time. Today we discover New York's lost docks. I'm your host Ryan Sokash and you're watching It's History. In the 1900s, New York City was by far the busiest port in the US, and perhaps even the world. Its location was ideal, settled along a large natural harbor on the east coast. The city had access to the Hudson River, and as we have already discussed in a previous video, 1825 saw the creation of the Erie Canal, linking New York with the cities of the Great Lakes. Hell, at a certain point you could even expedite shipping swiftly from California thanks to the Panama Canal opening in 1914. Believe it or not, it only took 13 days to sail all the way from New York to San Francisco. The University of Houston probably said it best, noting that it's a perfectly situated gateway between Europe and the United States, allowing goods to flow throughout the country. This came at a time when the main, and perhaps only, real way of transporting goods was by water, but the docks also saw thousands of immigrants. The shores of Manhattan and Brooklyn thrived with ports and warehouses, and the shorelines were packed with manufacturers who wanted to stay close to the places of shipment. This was just a practical efficiency. The history of these piers run deep well before the construction of the Erie Canal. Traces of docks can be dated all the way back to 1659, when the first New York Pier was constructed to the east, shipping a variety of goods with substantial amounts of wheat and cotton being supplied to Europe, the West Indies, and along the coast of the United States. It was a cornerstone of the developing marketplace. By the end of the American Revolution, the port was fourth in terms of total cargo tonnage. It also proceeded the first scheduled vessel service called the Black Ball Line created in 1818, coming alongside Robert Fulton's monopoly on steamboats. Canals were, in many ways, New York City's lifeline, keeping a steady flow of goods and passengers coming to be received at the ports. If one were to take a walk along the docks, they would have witnessed crowds of disembarking passengers, eager onlookers, and groups of men loading and unloading various goods onto ships at any given time. Back then, the men handling cargo were known as stevedores, also referred to as dock workers or longshoremen, they were crucial to the waterways. They had to have a special knowledge of how to handle heavy cargo properly and how to pack ships in a safe and space efficient way. These workers also needed to be exceptionally strong physically and capable of paying close attention to their surroundings to make sure that all the goods being shipped would make their voyage without any loss of profit or harm to passengers or crew. Thanks to ship owners, captains, and maritime business operators, these dock workers made up a sizable portion of new jobs in the city. In terms of the kind of men that worked these jobs, the South Street Seaport Museum proclaims the following. Early stevedore work 
work in New York City was seen as a ticket to freedom for many enslaved men. They were often more concerned with muscle and maritime skill than skin color or enslaved status. In other words, prejudiced views were outweighed and overlooked by the need for workers who could perform the incredibly arduous task of lifting and loading bulky cargo. Thanks to the significant rise in immigration, by 1880, 95% of stevedores in New York City were Irish, the other 5% being Germans, the English, and Scandinavians. But the waterfront industry in New York City was not nearly done growing yet. By the 1920s, New York City's waterfront was handling nearly half of all America's international trade. 200 shipping companies dispatched ships up and down the rivers, seeing a mix of agricultural goods, raw materials, and manufactured products serving nearly 6 million residents. The city's economy thrived, and in 1923, New York produced one-twelfth of all the nation's manufacturing. Furthermore, the bulk of ready-made American clothing was centered in New York, producing articles such as suits, coats, dresses, shoes, and really anything that was in demand. The National Museum of American History reports that tens of thousands of people and hundreds of vessels traveled New York City's busy harbor every single day, with steamers leaving or entering the port every 20 minutes. The docks of New York City saw a wide variety of vessels, including, but not limited to, coastal freighters, harbor tugs, and river steamers, each ship having to navigate the heavy traffic every day as it ferried its cargo across the busy waters. Large wooden schooners primarily handled the carrying of particularly heavy cargo, such as stone, lumber, and coal, whereas tugboats helped large ocean-bound vessels navigate the confined dock space. As vessels poured into the harbor, they were joined by storehouses and warehouses built along the waterfront to readily support goods that could be sent out to markets all across the country, and even to the world. So now, without further ado, let's stop and take a look at some of these incredible ports and warehouses. In 1910, the Chelsea Piers opened after eight years of construction, with great fanfare and a ribbon-cutting ceremony. Three years before the piers were completed, two luxury liners, called the Lusitania and the Mauritania, docked there in 1907. Mayor George B. McLennan was largely responsible for the construction and completion of the piers, and the New York Times referred to them as, quote-unquote, the most remarkable urban design achievement of their day. Over the course of the next 50 years, the Chelsea Piers saw many kinds of businesses, from New York City's premier passenger ship terminal to an embarkation point for the battlefields of both world wars, or a cargo terminal during the late 50s and early 60s. Generally speaking, these piers thrived. However, they ultimately fell victim to the maritime industry's downfall, and urban decay swiftly followed. One account, dating back to the mid-1980s, reads, Today the Chelsea piers are shabby, pathetic reminders of a glorious past. No ships call there, decay has set in and is well advanced. Walls and ceilings are collapsing, windows are shattered, and their vast empty spaces echo to the rattling and banging of loose sheet metal and the cracking timbers as the winds and tides of the Hudson exert their changing pressures. This statement came alongside the preparations to raise the Chelsea Piers as the city had ambitions to build a new highway along the Hudson. 
However, this project failed and the Chelsea Piers were left in shambles for years as a combination of warehouses and parking places. Fences were broken down and the walls crumbled, leaving the piers a hollow shell of what they once were. Another one of these iconic piers is Pier 97, constructed between 1921 and 1934. For decades, Pier 97 was the dedicated hub of the Swedish America Line, with hundreds of thousands of Scandinavians entering the United States at this point. One of its most significant claims to fame was in 1956, when it served as the docking site for the MS Stockholm as it returned with the survivors of the capsized SS Adriadoria, making it part of one of the most well-known rescue missions in all of maritime history. This pier did not see complete obsolation as many others did. It remained in active use until the 1970s. The New York Dock Company was a major contributor to the thriving waterfront economy and was responsible for constructing many different shipping warehouses. Two of these shipping warehouses located at 160 and 62 Imlay Street in Red Hook, Brooklyn were part of what was called a global encircling commercial undertaking. At the time, an expansive network of 200 warehouses, 39 piers, and three ship-to-rail freight terminals extended over three miles of Brooklyn's waterfront. They primarily stored cotton and tobacco with hundreds of men employed to move shipments in and out of the shafts that filled the structures. Tragically, however, the dying industry and the out-of-date structure of the shipping warehouses combined to spell their demise in 1983. As the heart of trade in New York shifted away from the waterfront, however, the Hudson River itself, once a blessing to trade, now began to hinder it as it was becoming too difficult to get the goods onto trucks and trains. The train cars had to be shipped in on barges and received at ports. In addition to this, trucks also clogged up the busy New York streets and tunnels, and the ocean liners were no longer in high demand as the millions of immigrants that once flowed into the city had slowed to a trickle. Hence, it would be New Jersey's Newport that landed one of the most substantial blows to New York's once thriving docks. You see, the derelict and seldom used ports in New Jersey had been the subject of many improvements and renovations after World War II. But in 1955, trade in New Jersey was revolutionized when a new port was built across 450 acres of tidal marsh. This new port was the picture of modern efficiency, offering easy access to both rail lines and the New Jersey Turnpike, and making use of shipping containers to lower costs and allow more cargo to be carried than ever before, even as New York City fought back, pouring thousands into its ports in hopes of keeping them relevant, the spell was cast. They soon fell obsolete as New Jersey became home to the busiest container port globally for the time, along with the current and most active container port on the East Coast today. The crippling losses the ports suffered also had a massive impact on the citizens of New York City. It is reported that one in four residents in Manhattan and Brooklyn left the area, sending the city into a devastating spiral that almost reached bankruptcy in the 1970s, and most of the docks simply rotted. So with that in mind, let's have a look at what remains today. The docks and warehouses fell into disrepair for many years, long abandoned by the ships and passengers that once graced the waterfront. But inside the ever-changing city, 
there remain traces of a time that once was, and many of these docks have been renovated or repurposed. Let's start with the abandoned Red Hook Storehouse, for example. In 2002, both buildings were purchased for $22 million, and plans were set to turn the storehouse on 160 Imlay into 144 condos. Unfortunately, thanks to a local Chamber of Commerce lawsuit which wanted to keep the properties for industrial use, the plans fell through. Things turned out far better for the storehouse on 62 Imlay, however, as it was turned into a storage facility for an auction house. It was also given a much-needed renovation, and now it houses many priceless private art collections from artists such as Jackson Pollock and Vincent van Gogh. Turning back to the storehouse at 160, it remained a gutted shell of itself for many years, dilapidated, covered in black netting and weathered by a mixture of wind, rain, and time. But it has not been forgotten. Its renovations are slowly but surely coming along, with decades-old scaffolding being taken down and the windows being replaced. The Department of Transportation auctioned off the Chelsea Piers after the failure of the previously mentioned highway project in May of 1992. Eventually, Chelsea Piers management was awarded the rights to lease the piers and operate a large sports and entertainment facility on site. Groundbreaking ceremonies were held on July the 12th 1994, with over 1,200 guests, and in August of 1996, the Chelsea Piers Sports and Entertainment Complex, which remains operational today, was opened in stages. Once complete, the privately financed project costs will come to $100 million in total. And well, it is sad that the original historic Chelsea Piers were lost, they have been revitalized and given a new life, continuing to serve thousands of New Yorkers every single day. Pier 97 also survived the rapid industrial decline, although it saw far less disuse, as it remained relatively active through the 1970s and did not fall into such extensive decay. It was briefly used as a parking lot for the Department of Sanitation until 2011, and now it is being given a much-needed restoration from the Hudson River Park to ensure it has a bright and optimistic future. If you're looking to catch a concert once Phase 1 of the construction completed, in fall of 2022, Pier 97 is the place. Phase 2 will be completed by summer of 2023 and will add many comfort stations north of the pier itself. So I guess you could say that Pier 97 is not lost at all. It's weird to consider that these creepy-looking, decaying dock pilings poking through New York's waterfront are the leftovers of a time when New York City was at its peak as a center of physical commerce. From its era of coming to age as a global city, the docks have long since passed. But I can guarantee you that without them, New York might as well have been lost between Philadelphia and Boston. So keep this story alive by sharing. Don't forget to check out our series, Tales of Urban Decay, and subscribe to its history for more. This is Ryan Sokesh, signing off.